Welcome to the Other Worlds cast. We're talking about Judah, an eight-part Israeli TV series about vampires, the criminal underworld, and Orthodox Judaism. So if you're interested in any of those things, and what they might have to say about living in the world today, then this is the place for you. Written by and starring Zion Baruch, Judah is filmed in Hebrew, Russian, French, Romanian and English. But if you're not fluent in all five of those languages, subtitles are available. It follows the story of an egotistical gambler who crosses paths with a vampire and is himself transforming, along the way exploring themes of religious identity, community and choice. I sat down to talk about Judah with Dr Holly A. Jordan who brings her perspectives both as an academic with backgrounds in education, religion and political theory and as a Jewish person. It's it's one of the campiest shows that I've watched in a very long time. It takes on the vampire um, lore in, in not a sparkly Twilight sort of way, but kind of going back to the roots of the story. There's things that predate Dracula, but definitely picking up where the Dracula story left off and what could happen since then so the show itself is is quite stylish visually people could think of maybe something like blade um although it doesn't take itself as seriously as blade you've mentioned it's quite camp it's gothic it's very in touch with with the kind of high gothic roots of uh vampire stories um you've got these bad guy vampires and they're all kind of dressed in black they're like uh 90s early thousands goths you know uh it's everything you want really it's uh it's but great like, fun with a bit of like almost an evanescence vibe like that's where like yes! that's itself seriously like right. they've got the look but then they kind of you know the music alone some of the background sounds and stuff so even in those little ways it's you're right it does mm-hmm. not take itself seriously while still having very serious messages underpinned throughout the entire thing. Kind of a, I don't want to say low life, because he really is very endearing, but definitely kind of, you know, somebody who gambles and and drinks, um, this man called Judah, it finds himself in a situation where he has to gamble to, to earn a lot of money, to pay off people he's indebted to, to try to get himself enough money to get out of this world, and finds himself traveling to Romania, entering into a, um, a, a card game, winning far more than expected, um, robbed and bitten by a vampire. <laughs> um, the challenge here being that according to the lore in this particular series, um, it is forbidden to bite a person of Jewish descent. The, the vampires speak to one another about the importance of not allowing this Jewish vampire because he has kind of like the antidote in many ways to this, this disease of, of vampirism. And he's going to, the prophecy is that he's going to wipe out the vampire race. Very, very much a unique spin and, and if you think about it think of the the imagery of vampires you know there's holy water there's crosses all of this you know catholic or orthodox symbolism you, you never heard well what 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 if there's a jewish vampire you know mm-hmm. um so it takes it takes things that we're familiar with 
introduces new ideas, sets it in a modern, secular Israeli society, um, balanced between a more orthodox tradition. And the orthodox tradition is actually the keepers of the vampire lore in Israel, surprisingly enough. So how big a deal is it really to have a, a, a Jewish vampire series? You know, so much of science fiction fantasy takes place in like another world or a dystopian world or a future perfect world where we've gotten over religion and race and, and all of these things that there's not a lot of Jews in that in that world. You know, maybe Buffy, you have Willow's character being Jewish kind of at times, but often as a, you know, punchline of a joke rather than it being a deep um, meaningful thing for her. What what else is there? What other representations of Judaism and Jewish life are there in gate culture? I've been racking my brain for this, and maybe this is just holes in my own geekdom, you know, it's such a spectrum. I mean, you have older novelizations, right? Like, I mean, there's so much Jewishness in, like, Stranger in a Strange Land, for mm. instance. Um, but I'm... the title? Yeah, exactly. And it's just... I don't, I don't know. I mean, again, like so often it's just, oh, and by the way, this character's Jewish. Mm. I mean, you, you get some of it in, I believe, Fantastic Four. There's versions where the backstory of, of one of them is Jewish. Um, mm -hmm. You've had Magneto's story really pulled out in the new X-Men films about his experience in, in the camp. That opening scene of X-Men, that very affecting opening scene of the little boy um, at the camp and pulling down the gates. Yeah. The only other thing I, that really comes to mind for me is the Lemony Snicket series, a series right. of unfortunate events, which yes. are full of uh, Jewish themes and peppered with just subtle, subtle little references, little grace notes. So if there's ever a public holiday mentioned, it's always a Jewish holiday. And that comes to the fore, I think, a little bit more in the recent Netflix series. And uh, he, he did write, um, the author also wrote a Hanukkah children's book. As well. Lot, yeah, that wouldn't stop screaming. Yes, which is yeah. a very fun one to do dramatic readings of it. <laughs> for sure. Um, and then, I mean, it's not so much, it's it's farcical geekdom, but the, the television series, The Goldbergs. The family yes. is very secularly Jewish. Yeah. I mean, to the point where, like, the mother's main favorite dish is, like, a shrimp casserole covered in cheese, you know? But, and so the Jewishness is a part of it, but really it's a story of 80s, you know, fan love and nerddom and whatnot. Yeah. And that's great as well. I, you know, very guilty pleasure show, but I really love that show. <laughs> in in uh, Judah then, Judah, the Jewishness is, is very much up front. The Jewishness is the whole point mm -hmm. um, of the story. It's interesting, you know, it's pulling elements from Hebrew Bible, Old Testament yeah. to justify the existence of a Jewish vampire and why their powers would be different, why, it, for instance, you know, it's, it, it takes a day for a traditional vampire to go, you know, be bit and become a vampire. In this version, it's, it's eight days. You know, it's going back to the covenants of, yeah. of Judaism, the, the, the circumcision of boys on the eighth day. Um, so it, the, the author, you know, and our, and our protagonist, our lead actor, uh, he, he knows both sides of it quite well and manages to find the elements of Hebrew Bible that naturally would inform 
some of the the later tradition. Yeah. And then you have that scene in I think the second episode where he meets with uh, with the rabbi who's the kind of the wise uh, as you said the keeper type figure uh, and he opens this tea stained tome of uh, of lore and in in this vampire world they they have this this fictional compound Hebrew word for the vampire which is the mot min dam which would be death sex and blood and the rabbi tells him you know you, over the next week like your your drive for violence is going to ex- increase exponentially. Your uh, your want for sex is going to increase as well. Um, and then, but there's something uniquely Jewish about some of this, right? So the sacrifices of the temple um, mm. required the sacrifice of a perfect animal, a an instantaneous death, a lack of suffering, and a complete draining of blood. So even now, kosher meat. Is, is killed in the same sort of way. The blood is drained. It's even pa- The meat itself is even packed in kosher salt to bring out whatever little bit of blood remains. Um, and this is what happens to Judah. His blood is drained. He dies um, in a very ritualistic way. And he is the one who is prophesied to be this, this perfect sacrifice who then wipes out the vampire race. A lot of vampire lore uses the idea of Cain yes. uh, and the story of Cain, the first murderer, uh, as the first vampire, that the curse that's on Cain is the curse of vampirism, that the mark of Cain, you know, uh, that it says in Genesis is going to scare off attackers or whatever. And uh, he says, people won't come near me because of this, this mark, uh, that, that are, that's the kind of vampiric qualities. They do bring up this, the story of the first murder and Cain, but instead of kind of going down the Cain rabbit hole, they go down Abel instead. Yeah. Um, you know, Cain kills Abel. The vampire race kind of often is attributed back to that murder and him as being kind of through that lineage. But the argument that is made is that murder of the first, you know, the first murder when supposedly there's only four people on earth and yet Cain then magically goes next door to Nod and like marries, <laughs> like, like, where did they come from? Um, he, the rabbi says, you know, when you kill a person, you kill an entire generation. It's why the you know the scriptures say that voices called up from the spilled blood of Abel. Um, so maybe this is just a vengeance story for that entire line of people that was wiped out. Maybe that's that's the point. That's why it has to be a Jewish killer of of the vampire species to to make up for the loss of Abel, which is kind of a strange eye for an eye way of looking at it. In Judah, that Cain origin story is very briefly referenced. Yes. But then, rather than going down that route of, of that mythology and introducing the character of Lilith, which again is sort of quite common, and you might expect from a Jewish vampire show, they totally drop that and do something really original and unexpected and slightly silly um, about what Dracula got up to during the Second World War. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's this brilliant way of weaving the historical context right yeah. and we get this animated sequence kind of deathly hallow style yeah animated sequence so you you've got dracula in in a vampiric family living up in his castle and and a young jewish boy escapes from a nearby camp and you know is is hurt and is dying and they bring him back to the castle and he he becomes the best friend of of young Dracula. Like his best mate is this Jewish kid that comes out of a camp. Um, and 
you know, he's harmed. He's dying. His father told him, like, you can't convert this guy. But, you know, you don't want your best friend to die if he's hurt. So he converts him. Mm-hmm. And it's this big problem because after eight days, it is prophesied that this is the figure that's going to kill all of the vampires. And so the only person that can kill a Jewish vampire is the one who sired them. So it's this big conundrum of preservation of human life, which vampires normally aren't really concerned about, um, with knowing the consequences of that action. The show is so much about choices and consequences. And you see that from the Dracula narrative, you see it through Judah's narrative, you see it through his his best friend Asher's narrative, you see it through Menachem, one of the um, one of the men that follows the rabbi, and and you see it throughout the whole show. This the the free will conversation. You know, does a vampire have free will if they've already been bit? Yeah. Um, so yeah, and grounding it in historicity when it's a myth, right? You know, vampire yeah. lore and mythology pinned into this one very historical Holocaust context, a very Jewish context. The inclusion of, of Dracula, you know, sets the setting in Romania, it really pins the colors to the mast in terms of uh, high Gothic credentials of the show. It's in, it's in this lineage. You know, we're in the post-Twilight world, so we need, to, we need to be clear about what kind of thing we're doing here when we say vampires, you know. Absolutely. The concept of a Jewish vampire brings up some interesting problems given the limitations on consuming or even touching blood. Here we talk about how the writer of Judah handles that tension, the significance of blood in Judaism, and how lies about Jewish practices around blood have been used against Jewish communities over the years. I mean, it's vital. The idea of blood is is life in Mm. Judaism. The touching of blood makes one ritually impure. You know, you're not supposed to eat it. You're not supposed to, to shed it. Women have to go to the mikvah, the ritual bath, after their period every single month to become pure. If, if, if somebody, if a man touches blood in, inappropriately, he must cleanse himself in a mikvah before worshiping again. I mean, this is the whole story of, of the Good Samaritan, even in, in the New Testament, of, you know, the, the Levite and the, and the priest passing the man because he's covered in blood. It would make him ritually impure. Um, I mean, especially you see it in the Ethiopian Jewish traditions where, I mean, this is the highest most sanctifying thing. It's it's the, the thing that flows through your veins that makes you Jewish. Um, so to have to survive by drinking blood is problematic. Um, and you almost get kind of the 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 Renfield kind of arc with him a little bit where he goes from like eating flies to eating, you know, rats and stuff like that. Like you see Judah do the same thing. He uh he hits a cat one night on yeah. his way, like his first, I think it's his first night of being a vampire and it dies and then he like drinks from it and and kind of freaks out uh, and one of the rules for for him is that if he wants to be this uh this chosen one if he wants to fulfill this this mission um he must not uh drink human blood that that's forbidden yes and and, and the rabbis make this abundantly clear um but as we learned in the narrative judas judas doing his own thing he's he understands the role that is being asked of him, he rejects some of it, um, and, and and the consequences of, of drinking human blood are, are pretty pretty dire. Um, so th- just the, the the entire idea of the figure is 
problematic. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. Um, kind of, again, begging the question, can you truly have a Jewish vampire that is still Jewish? We talk about, you know, kind of modern Jewish identities. You know, yeah. you have the spectrum from liberal reform Judaism all the way to, you know, very, very observant Judaism. They're all, you know, still Jewish, but, yeah. you know, how you choose to accept the relevance of the 613 commandments in your daily life, you know, kind of identifies you as what particular kind of Jew you are. And, yeah. and Judah is forging his own path. Well, how, how does the, the, the rabbi, the, the keeper figure, how does he square the circle of, of blood drinking for every rule, for every kosher rule that is, that is broken? The rabbi has an answer. Yeah, I mean, he shows him at one point, you know, there is a way to do this within the rules to a point. Um, so he brings him a pure, spotless lamb to drink from that is acceptable because you know that is the sacrifice to god that was accepted in the ancient period he is inspired by god he is a weapon of god in some ways um so it would make sense if you're going to drink blood to keep as many of the rules as possible the instantaneous death the lack of suffering mm-hmm. um but you still have to do it you know yeah. you have to drink it lest you die kind of you you have him um being encouraged to use his powers for good only you know don't kill out of vengeance out of spite out of anger um you know only go after the vampires don't don't hurt anyone else i mean the preservation of life especially post-holocaust is an incredibly important part of of jewish theology um martyrdom is not really a concept in judaism um but it happened, you know, when the when the Inquisition is happening in Spain and they're given the option of convert, leave, or die, many died um, mm. rather than, you know, leave their faith. After the Holocaust, with the loss of a third of the community worldwide, the rabbis have really, and, and the theologians have really moved to a view that preservation of human life trumps any commandment. If someone is going to die, on the Sabbath, you take them to the hospital. Yeah. You, you ensure that. Um, and so you see this, I, I honestly believe in, in the figure of the rabbi where he's like, you're going to have to kill. There's no way around this, but you, you need to do it within a perspective that you are saving lives, mm. not taking innocence. It's interesting. You, you mentioned the Inquisition and there is a resonance, there's an uncomfortable resonance here with the blood libel yeah <laughs> yeah there really is for, just for any listeners who aren't familiar with the 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 history of the blood libel do you want to outline that for us so there was all these superstitions lies about jews you know during the middle ages the medieval period that um you know, because of kind of the symbolism of blood in Judaism, it's 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 extrapolated out in so many strange ways that um, Jews sacrifice um, uh, Christian babies to paint the doorposts of their house during mm. Passover and use their blood to make you know the the unleavened bread that is the traditional you know food of that holiday. And this goes back to the idea from Exodus that, you know, a lamb, again, was sacrificed 
the blood let the angel of death to to know to pass over the houses of the observant Jews. Um, I mean, and this is all then connected to greater issues about Jews in the community, you know, they're the ones that killed Christ and, you know, they're, they're demonic and have horns and they're all these, all these things that kind of fit into vampire lore too, you know, satanic kind of imagery applied back to the, the blood related traditions of, of, of Judaism. Um, and, and (laughs) this is almost the reverse of it in this story, you know, it's through blood that Judah is going to save the world. And, and, rather than blood being the thing that makes Jews evil according to those old blood libel traditions. Our conversation about the rules of vampires turned to the role of the outward signs of religious observance and how a recent moment in US history has changed outward observance significantly for Jewish communities there. Being Jewish means that Judah isn't subject to some of the traditional vampire weaknesses, crosses, um, holy water, sunlight, except on, on the Sabbath. Sabbath. Yeah. Um, I mean, God, God created the universe through light. If you're going to go with Genesis 1 over Genesis 2, God speaks the universe into existence saying, let there be light. And there was. And then later on, the sun gets created, which is a pretty cool thing to think about. Um, and, and so... The, the day, the Sabbath is the holiest day of, of the week. It is a, a weekly holiday. And in that time, you know, traditionally God's presence is most felt on earth. You know, we see in the traditions, you know, when Moses is on the top of the mountain and sees God, um, there's, there's descriptions of, of light and, and Moses is, comes down off the mountain, his entire visage changed you know and it's said that he's shown and we have so many different we don't really know what that means you know something changed about him that involved light or shininess in some way so connecting light with god on the holiest day of the year i mean we light candles on shabbat to bring in that period of holiness we light a candle and extinguish it it's the only candle in judaism that is ever extinguished rather than being allowed to burn out Um, Mm. to end that period of holiness. So the only time Judah can be killed by the traditional vampire things is during the Sabbath with with direct sunlight. And you see him get hurt by it. Like they have to sneak him into a building to get him out of the sunlight, wrapped in a prayer shawl, which I find to be very interesting. I mean, you know, it's an easy piece of cloth that everybody is wearing in the Orthodox community. So it's there. But, you know, they could have had a blanket in the car. You know, they could have wrapped him in a trench coat. They, they made the choice to use that symbol of, of prayer um, in Judaism, in tradition. Um, that and I that think it's great. image of the prayer shawl, particularly in the final episode or penultimate episode, uh, where they see, uh, you see his friends around him, protecting him, and they do it with a symbol of prayer and the uh, and an outward symbol of Jewishness. And that that's a big thread through all the episodes from from the very beginning, where we see him uh, walking through the airport. Uh, he's approached by uh, a visibly outwardly orthodox observant jew who's encouraging him to pray with him and that's the first point where we learn i suppose where judah stands that he's not particularly a believer 
he, he straight away says to the guy, well, where was God during the Holocaust? Um, yeah. He's, he's, he's a guy who's not interested in, he's not interested in religion. I mean, it's even better than that because he's starting to say what you assume is that Holocaust line that so many say. And Menachem, the the man who's encouraging to pray, is like, what are you going to say? You know, the Holocaust thing? He's like, no, where was God last week when I was gambling and lost all my money? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the tradition of that, you're not supposed to make money from money in yes. Judaism. You know, and, and that's literally how he makes his income is making money from money. I mean, you know from the first moment you see him that he's not observant. If you're paying attention to the outward symbols, I mean he's he's covered in tattoos, for instance. Mm. And you know, that's traditionally not acceptable in Judaism. Um but there are these these outward symbols. And some of the outward symbols are even used to distract, um, to allow them to fulfill their mission. There's a there's a portion, and it's it's one of the best prison heists I've ever seen. It's so fun and so silly, but so good, where um, Judah's friend Asher has been arrested, and they need to get him out. And so they use the figure of this observant Jew to go in, encourage all of the police officers to use phylacteries to fill in the, the prayer boxes and to and to pray. And he's handing out copies of the Psalms and stuff. And they use one of the copies of the Psalms to smuggle like a weapon in to help Asher get out. And it's all this misdirection. He's hanging a mezuzah, the, the sign on the doorposts of, of a Jewish home that's often put in doorways of, of any space as a symbol of protection. You know, doorways being such an important part of vampire lore. You can't mm. cross a threshold without being invited. Um, all these outward signs of Judaism to further the plot, to further the story. Um, all the while I'm thinking, this is really cool and interesting, especially for a character who's so not visibly Jewish. But then you come back to his origin story how he becomes this, this vampire hero. It's through blood and sacrifice and the most powerful but private symbol of Judaism in many ways is that, that covenant of blood that comes through the covenant of Abraham in, in Genesis. Um, I mean, you have this man, Abraham, who's been called out of his homeland to follow a God that no one in his home believes in to a land he has never been to. And in, you know, his old age, you know, does not, he's going to be a father of nations is asked in a world without penicillin or anesthesia to circumcise himself and all the men in his community. I mean, talk about a leap of faith, right? I mean, you can bleed out. You can get an infection. You could die. You might not, if you do it wrong, you might not be able to become the father of nations. It's a perfect sacrifice of faith. And, but I mean, in Judaism, the rules about modesty and whatnot, like you're never going to know a man is truly Jewish outwardly. And you have this constant kind of shifting between those public and private identities of Jewishness and Judah having to make a choice. How is he going to present this new identity that has been thrust upon him so from the beginning of the show we see this uh there's kind of a big visual contrast even between uh, a character like judah and his friends and then the observant uh orthodox jews who are who are visibly that their their jewish identity is is visible because of their because of their clothes because of how they present themselves 
this is really what stuck out for me in the show. Kind of the difference between Judah, who from moment one you see Menachem trying to force him into praying publicly and him not, that, that not being his identity. And the, the thing I really took away from the show is in some ways it's a commentary on the, the modern Jewish experience. I mean, I don't, I don't know that the showrunner was thinking of it from an American context, and, and Israel has a, a very similar sort of cultural moment happening as well. Sure. But, you know, living in America right now as a practicing reform liberal Jew, it's been an interesting time for us. And I, and I found myself watching Judah's journey, trying to wrestle with this identity and, and how so many of my friends and I have been feeling, um, especially post 2016. I mean, we've had a rampant rise in anti-Semitic acts in the United States from mass shootings at temples to arson to the desecration of grave sites. Um, University of Georgia, my alma mater, which had a vibrant, has a vibrant Jewish community. I was involved very much with both Chabad and Hillel there, just had an anti-Semitic attack in the dormitories and in several of the buildings on campus with, with, you know, graffiti and, and, and signage. And it's not the first time university of Georgia has had it even. So we're having multiple attacks on the same sites, both, you know, physically, emotionally, all these things. And it's, it's the challenge that many of us are living through. I have friends who have responded by being more outwardly Jewish in, in protest. Like I shouldn't have to hide. I have, female friends who have chosen to start wearing kipot or yarmulkes, often a sign of, of masculine Judaism, um, you know, wearing jewelry more often. And I have a lot of friends and there've been times myself included, depending on where I'm going and who I'm going to be around that I was somebody that very almost regularly wore Jewish jewelry that I, I choose not to wear it. Like there are moments where it's not every time I go to temple, but some days I, you know, as I'm driving over, I wonder, is this the day that my synagogue gets shot up? Mm. Um, our sacred space has changed markedly in, in the United States um, with, I mean, there's police officers, Secu- not just security guards, but actual police officers outside of my temple. Oh, wow. On Fridays and on Saturdays. Um, security is very heightened. I mean, we, we have different barriers even to getting into the temple that would keep somebody for instance from driving a car into the building and blowing things up um there's signage in the sanctuary area on the doors that tell you what to do in the event of an active shooter i mean this is my sacred space and i have to think about violence in it and if it's safe for me to even go and you know i i I didn't feel that way before the last few years uh, and we saw that big sort of increase in, in violence, increase in reports of violence. We can we can pinpoint that to a particular moment in 2016. Yeah, yeah, election, <laughs> election day and the day after, yeah. right? I mean, there's direct statistical evidence that you know the narratives around the inaugural, I mean, the the election and the inauguration of 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 President Trump, you know, have in some ways validated some of these beliefs about about Jews, about Muslims, about, you know, African Americans, about, you know, women, all these things. Um, 
and you know, I don't want to say Judah's dealing with the same things. You know, his is much more of a personal journey of figuring out who he is. But I think a lot of American Jews are having a similar conversation with themselves about how public do I want to make my practice and how much of it do I want to keep personally in my community behind closed doors. I mean, the, that whole thing of praying in public where, where Menachem, I mean, we keep coming back to the airport scene, but I think it's really pivotal. Uh, Menachem wants him to pray in public. Yeah. At, at Georgia, this happened. Um, there was um, Rabbi Refson, who's still there, and he and his wife run an amazing community of, of Jewish students at the Chabad there. Um, Rabbi Refson would go around campus during um, the holidays, you know, and, and with a shofar, and and would encourage you to pray, you know, and he would recite it with you if you didn't know the Hebrew and have you repeat after him. He would blow the shofar. It was loud. Anybody on campus could hear it. Uh-huh. Um, on Sukkot, he would have the lulav and the etrog, like two symbols of the fall harvest where you're supposed to pray and, and wave it in particular directions. And he would he would ask you, you know, do you want to new, do a mitzvot? Do you want to do a commandment? It's a blessing to perform mitzvot and encourage us to do it. And completely felt safe doing it. I mean, you get some strange looks from students, of course, who were not familiar with the practices, but you know, the weird things happen on college campuses all day long outside. Like it's not that much weirder than anything else. And now I, I probably wouldn't have even made eye contact if I, if I saw that Rabbi Refson had it. Not because I don't love him and trust him, but because it makes us an open target on campus. And I hate having to think that way. And I don't think Judah's looking at it that way. He's looking at it from a, this is not who I am point of view but conversely i think in the jewish experience in america right now it's a this is who i am and i don't feel comfortable sharing it you know we've had attacks on muslim communities we've had attacks on sikh we've had attacks on sikh communities honestly since 9-11 because there's a lack of understanding that sikhs aren't arabs sikhs aren't muslims um and you know so we're not the only ones going through this there's a heightened um anger towards the other in Mm. so many ways we had talked about stats and I made sure to go back and look them up because I didn't want to overinflate, but you know, 60% rise in anti-Semitic attacks, but equally large numbers on other religions, other ethnic groups, other, other minorities across the board. So, I mean, we're looking at a large rise in violence in, in general, you know, I, for work, I travel and I, you know, I travel to Gaza, I travel to the West Bank, I travel to refugee camps in, in Lebanon for, you know, Syrian refugees. And, you know, for those who haven't had that experience, you know, family, friends here, that's terrifying for them because, you know, unfortunately, American media presents these places as war zones, chaos, you know, you don't, you know, unless you've studied these things, you think of Gaza as just like a pit of like bombed out stuff. You don't know that there's hotels and, and, and you know, hospitals and commu- vibrant communities like towns, you know, cities. Um, yeah. And, and people are like, don't you feel so unsafe there, you know, as a, as a Jewish person or, or, you know, just as an American or just being in that space. I'm like, honestly, I feel more safe there, period, than I do at home half the time. I remember the first time I was ever in the States as a kid and watching a CNN story about a, a bomb in Northern Ireland. I can't remember where it was. And it was just a sort of small device and think property had been harmed but not not people um but just the way it was reported uh this hollywood um war zone with 
you know, the, the flames licking up around the, around the edges of the camera frame as the car burned out, you know. It was an eye-opener for me as a child, seeing my home through someone else's eyes. And I know we're getting a, a bit away from the show, and I hope that your listeners are cool with that, but it's all connected for me. You know, just, you know, I was forced to really rethink some of these issues that I have been experiencing and living through and, and my community has through the lens of this one character going on a parallel path, not a, not a, not the same, but figuring out how to be who we are in a space where who we are is unique and challenging. With the idea of visible and hidden Jewish identity so prominent throughout the series, we find ourselves talking about the importance of choice in religious identity, and whether people, vampire or otherwise, truly have freedom to choose. He didn't make the choice. He didn't, you know, go and say, hey, Tanya, I would love to become a vampire today. Can you hook me up? You know, it wasn't his choice. She made the choice for him. Um, and there's definitely parallels, of course, between, you know, Judaism being the, the, the chosen the people that keep the, the religion of God. You know, they were chosen. Any, any group of people could have been chosen. We were for, for better or for worse. Um, and, and, and Judah deciding whether or not he's going to accept being chosen, you know, not having that agency and free will. He can choose to drink human blood. He can choose not to. But he, he grapples with it. He struggles with it. He, he, Judah has this one-on-one -on -one conversation with the rabbi. Who's, Judah says, God chose the wrong person. And we see that throughout Judaism. And then the rabbi brings this up. Like, Noah didn't choose to be God's you know, person. Moses didn't choose it. Abraham didn't choose it. David didn't choose it. None of them did. But God saw something in them that they themselves could not see. Like the story of Moses probably being the most iconic where, you know, God chooses him and he's like, you got the wrong guy. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. I'm not a leader. That's my brother. You know, like mm -hmm. you, you have the narrative of Christ, even a very Jewish narrative of, you know, I'll do this if I have to, but if there's any way to take this cup away from me, like, please, for the love of God, do it. And, it, and it's so many stories of Judaism just in that one scene. Like, he touches upon the story of the sacrifice of Isaac. You know, Abraham, God commands him to take his son, his only son, who he loves, and sacrifice him on the mountain. And there's fighting amongst the rabbis about how old was Isaac. It changes the story dramatically. If he's a young boy who trusts his father, who doesn't quite get what's going on, or if he's an older man that absolutely gets it. I mean, are the pa there's this passage where Isaac says to his dad, you know, where, where, where's the, the lamb for the sacrifice, dad? I mean, you can picture this as like heavy sarcasm, but it also shows that Isaac did it willingly. I mean, think about it. Yeah. He's 37 years old. His dad's in his, what, hundreds at this point? There's no way that Isaac couldn't overpower his dad and get away. The rabbi brings up the 37-year-old version, the adult version. Like, Isaac chose to do it in spite of knowing it would change him forever. I mean, Judah, he can make his own choices. And the rabbi's encouraging him, like, have the faith of Isaac. Have this belief that, you know, God's commanding this for a reason and there's a purpose behind it. And the purpose, you know, for Judah is that he's going to be this vampire that, you know, avenges the line of Abel. 
again, we get the blood symbolism, we get the perfect sacrifice, we get the father of nations, you know, imagery that is almost destroyed by the death of one boy or man, depending on which way you look at it. And it's very properly chosen. I don't know that there's any other story in Jewish tradition that could have really hit home all of the elements of the vampire related imagery, um, the, the blood, sex, death, I mean, all of it. He thinks he has the new life under control. Um, and then the rabbis test him in a very painful way. They, they place him in a, in a cell shackled to the wall with his best friend, Asher. Then you see the rabbis outside looking in almost like, you know, double pane glass, you know, cop interrogation room style. And they, they, they pour they pour like horror movie, spoof movie amounts of blood onto Asher and it forces Judah to click into vampire mode. And he goes to rip the throat out of the person he cares about most in the world. In this one, it's such a great scene. If, if you're interested in watching the show, you know, listeners, based on what we're talking about, like it's this kind of stuff that makes it absolutely worth sitting down and, and just binging it on some weekend. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I did that or anything. Um, <laughs> And the rabbis are using it to prove to him, you are not as in control as you think you are. And you need to listen to us and listen to the way that we can train you and that we can shape you if you're going to become this weapon of God, which he doesn't necessarily want anyways. And he's livid. And Asher is terrified of his friend. And, and, and Judah's like, no, that is messed up. I'm not, I, I reject the narrative that's being thrust upon me and I'm going to do this myself. And that's powerful. That's absolutely powerful because in Judaism, questioning is encouraged. You know, you have, you have Abraham, like God says, I'm, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. They're terrible. They're horrible. They're not keeping the commandments. They got to go. And Abraham's like, well, what if there is a hundred good people? What if there's 80 good people? What if there's 20? What if there's like one good guy? And, he, and, and God, like, he talks God down. God listens. Um, yeah. Judah's having the same internal battle, like, fighting with God, fighting with the representatives of God, um, and figuring out who he's going to be. And that big reveal at the end that I don't really want to spoil is him finally figuring out what that answer is. So that is the main theme of the show, really. We follow Judah as he makes these choices. He's making choices about religious observance. He's making choices about his willingness to go down a difficult path. Uh, He's making choices in his in his relationships and in that key friendship with Asher. Um, It's it's a, a show all about his choices and his freedom to choose. He's completely free at all times to choose. And he's surrounded by people that are examples of that to him throughout the journey. We, you know, we find out Asher's backstory about halfway through the series, but Asher had to make a, a market lifestyle change mm. in his adult life. Menachem, who you just kind of see as the orthodox acolyte of the rabbi. Yeah. You find out that he 
was very much like Judah in an earlier part of his life, you know, in, involved in illegal activities and, and negative behavior. Yeah, I, I actually think that moment is one of the key moments because uh, in the first episode, Menachem is set up as this uh, counterpoint to Judah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Judah is an absolute disaster in, in how he dresses, in how he moves. Menachem is the, is, is the comparison character who's very calm, very orderly, orthodox gear. And throughout, you almost get the sense that he's comparing himself. You know, that's, that's not who I am. He, he's the kind of Jew that I'm not. Mm. And then at the end, when you find out Menachem's backstory, um, that he's he's a bit of a disaster too. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, the the outward signs, the observance, uh, makes sense. He sees it for what he what it is, not a sign of being better than, but a sign of acknowledging the need of that that discipline in his life that's provided by by the religious tradition, the religious community. Absolutely. He's the one that actually says to Judah, um, you are who you are. It is a done deal. Accept yourself. Just try to improve. And that's what Menachem has done. He, he knows who he is. He has this skill set. He's choosing to use it in a positive way. Mm. And it comes back to this kind of idea of sin in Judaism, not being something that we're born with that, that dooms us to hell without proper faith, but that that sin is is referred to as missing the mark in Judaism. Yeah. That, you know, God gives us these commandments, we know how to live, and, you know, a, a Jewish person is going to do their best to follow those laws and live a good life, but sometimes, intentionally or unintentionally, we, we mess up. Mm-hmm. And that there's room to move past that and, and grow. Choosing to improve is, is really important. And Judah's not been a good guy. He really, ha- I mean, he's, he, he's, I don't think he's evil or he's malicious, but he, he makes poor choices. He has bad impulse control. He, he's hurt people. I mean, we haven't even gotten into his personal life and his personal relationships. I mean, his, you know, he has terrible relationships with pretty much every single woman in his life. Um, and he tries very desperately to fix them as part of this path. Because, you know, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him in eight days. And he's successful in some and, and not successful in others. You know, he needs to improve his relationships with everybody. He needs to improve what he does for a living and how he goes about things. And um, But he's he's a good friend. He's a loving person. He, there's a beautiful ongoing story through the narrative of how, how much he loves his his niece and nephew. And, mm-hmm. and how he actually avoids them through much of the story because he's so terrified he might snap and hurt them i think the entire path comes down to this one quote like we are who we are for better or for worse you know we are creations of god we're on a path and we can beat ourselves up for the way that we are or we can analyze them figure out why we act the ways that we do and find a way to become better versions of ourselves throughout our lifetime um judah's becoming a superhero killing machine (laughs) (laughs) Um, throughout his arc but there's a way to do that in a way that brings about a better world there's this tradition that the the first word in leviticus um that one of the letters is always scribed small and one of the traditions is that the smallest your smallest action makes a difference you know your smallest choice has an effect. I like 
that that the smallest actions can have such impact. Judaism is not one of the proselytizing faiths. You know, it's not a missionary tradition. We yeah. don't go out and say, you know, have you accepted, you know, the, the message of Moses into your personal life? You know, we we just live. We exist to be an outward example of living a good life to the world. And so those little actions, those Jew, you know, those actions informed by our Jewish faith can can change the world mm-hmm. um, or can just, you know, make a make a dent. You know, I don't know if you ever saw the amazingly campy film uh, Death to Smoochie with Ed Norton and Robin Williams and John Stewart back when he still thought he could be an actor. Fabulous film. But there's there's this line in it with Ed Norton who's doing this kids show. And he's like, you know, you can't change the world, but you can make a dent. And I, it's always resonated with me because that's that's kind of this Jewish worldview. Like you can you can affect the world in very small ways by by simply living your faith. And that's what everybody in this narrative is trying to get Judah to do, is live some version of that Jewish life. In the final part of our interview, I asked Holly about her own religious identity and how that colors how she watches Judah. I was not born into a Jewish family. I was actually born into a very Lutheran family in all the best possible ways. Um, and through a series of, of life events, um, found myself looking for a different path. Um, mm. And I definitely had a period in my late teens where I shopped around a bit, you know, um, with, with George Harrison being one of my absolute idols. I kind of went through, you know, like a Hare Krishna period, you know, I worked at a Buddhist temple for a while. Um, but Judaism spoke to me in so many ways, mostly because of the idea that it's something you live and that you don't force upon others. And so for me, Judaism is an identity I chose. That's in many ways why the identity portions of this spoke to me, because it's, it's so fascinating when you convert. There's so many things you have to kind of decide how you're going to be Jewish. You know, what, what strain of Judaism you convert into? Are you going to be Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, Reconstructionist, you know, the whole gamut? Um, Ethnic choices, you know, the, the European Jews eat different things on the holidays than the North African, Middle Eastern Jews. You know, you're having to make all these choices. You choose your Jewish name, your Hebrew mm-hmm. name, your, your religious name before God. You know, that's something your parents traditionally choose for you if you're born Jewish. Are you going to keep the, all of the commandments? I mean, I will fully admit um, I'm from Baltimore and Baltimore is known for its tradition of eating blue crabs and, and seafood in general. And you know, those are the traditions of my family, my people. And so I've, I've just chosen to keep those. Um, and every, every Jewish person does this to a certain extent, you know. But you have, to, you have to do so many things as a convert. You have to learn a language that isn't something you've heard your entire life. You don't have the traditions of Hanukkah and Passover um, and Sukkot that you inherit from your family. You have to make your own traditions, make your own path. I mean, I had Jews in my life that kind of informed why I felt that this was a, a proper path for me. My, my big sis from our college kind of sorority relationship and, and you know, one of the professors I had in college and, and just several people, but I converted in Athens, Georgia. I first started going to synagogue on a weekly basis. I was part of the Jewish community there. I, my, one of my dearest friends, Ryan Singer, and I used to host Shabbat dinners at his house almost every single week. And it was how I cre- created family. And so I really loved the show because Judah's kind of in the same boat. You know, Asher is his family. You know, 
he has a family that he chose. Mm-hmm. He's having to decide what kind of Jew he's going to be, even if it, it, later in life. And, you know, I was in my early 20s when I made this choice for myself. Um, so I think there's a lot of space in this show for converts mm-hmm. or those who do not feel that the form of Judaism in which they were raised is the proper path for them to, to find a commonality of experience. I mean, you know, maybe they're not going to be gamblers with tattoos that like do all this crazy stuff, but they, they still have these feelings of figuring out their identity and how they fit into a community. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, that, that was really powerful because you don't see a lot of characters like that that I've encountered in portrayals of Judaism in film and television. Judaism is a questioning religion. You're, you don't have to believe simply because you're told to believe. You know, you're, you're encouraged to question why things exist in the Torah the way that they do. I mean, that's the beautiful part of, about reading the Talmud, right? The, the, the oral traditions of Judaism that were written down and there's commentaries on them. Like there's this little tiny passage in the center of the page. It's like two sentences that are the tradition. And then there's a response to it from like the 400s, 500s, you know, CE. And then it's like a notebook that's been passed down through generations of like, this rabbi says this, and this rabbi says this, and this rabbi thinks that other rabbi is full of crap. And it's, it's this beautiful understanding of like how the same teeny tiny passage in Judaism could be understood over space and time. Um, it's okay to question. That's an incredibly important part of my Christian upbringing that I feel translates into Judaism. Um, and then there's like small things. Um, you're never going to have a, you know, a Jewish person, like a rabbi standing on a street corner yelling at you for not going to temple. <laughs> like, it's just not going to happen. It's a private religious practice in a public community mm. that is about your relationship with God. And that at the end of the day, and that's my Lutheran background coming out too. Like, I don't need to talk to a priest in a confessional to be cool with God. I can talk to God. Those are the main kind of things for me. Plus, the food is amazing. Let's let's just be real. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) It's a TV show about vampires. But what's it actually about? Judah is the story of a man who, through no fault of his own, enters down a path of Jewish identity and public practice that he never would have chosen that tells him about who he is and who he can be, both as a Jew and as a human being. Judah is currently available to watch on Hulu. Holly Jordan, thank you.